0: from loyal Roman subject to helping save the eastern third of the empire from foreign invasion to a revolutionary fighting against Rome. Taking advantage of Rome in its weakest position in centuries and helping usher in a rise in Roman power that would allow it to survive for another few centuries. She was a Syrian wife of a local commander of Roman forces and, after his death, she conquered much of the eastern part of the Roman Empire. Her name was Zenobia, and she was one of the most successful of Rome's rivals. But being an enemy of Rome meant her time was limited, and her fall was as fast as her rise to glory. This is the Almost Forgotten. Welcome to the Almost Forgotten, the podcast that looks at great historical lives that seem to have slipped through the cracks of our collective memories. Episode 1.4 Zenobia. Zenobia lived in modern day Syria, in the city of Palmyra, and was born around 240 A.D. as Beth or Bet Zabai. It's an Aramaic name which was the common language of the region. Her origin is not certain. She was probably from a royal or at least locally important family, and she may have been a descendant of Cleopatra. She was referred to as Jewish, but also as a follower of Paul of Samosata, who was the bishop of Antioch. If true, rather than being Jewish, she was an early Christian. The distinction between the two religions wasn't always as well understood back then. But Antioch was one of the four or five main centers of early Christianity, and one of the most important cities in the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was the dominant force in Europe at the time, stretching from England down to Morocco, east to Egypt, the Levant, and Syria, but it had just entered what is known today as the Crisis of the 3rd Century, which we'll get to in a moment. The Sasanian Empire had just succeeded the Parthian Empire to the east of the Romans, centered in Persia, but stretching east into India. The Kushan Empire was doing the same thing in India as the Parthian, giving way this time to the Gupta Empire. The Han dynasty had just collapsed in China, giving way to the Three Kingdoms period. The Himirates were on the rise in southern Arabia, and Aksum was a strong power across the Red Sea in Africa. The Maya were entering their classic period on the Yucatan Peninsula. Zenobia's home of Palmyra was at the fringes of the Roman Empire. The city was not small. Some sources suggest 200,000 inhabitants and it was well off. It was a wealthy trading town located at an oasis halfway between the Roman-controlled Mediterranean and the Persian-owned Euphrates. It became part of the Roman Empire and the province of Syria in the first half of the first century AD, but it was wealthy in part because it was remote. It was a silk road trading town, and it was in the Tadmorian Desert. It was quicker to go through the desert than to go around it and around the surrounding mountains. But doing so meant you had to stop in Palmyra, and in those days, well-traveled rest stops made good money. Palmyra has risen again in notoriety these days, unfortunately because ISIS captured the city, killed the city's retired antiquities chief, Khaled al-Assad, and looted and destroyed many of its well-preserved ruins. Appian wrote of Palmyra when chronicling the Roman civil wars, because Mark Anthony tried to plunder the city unsuccessfully. He wrote that Palmyrans were merchants and, quote, they bring the products of India and Arabia from Persia and dispose of them in the Roman territory, unquote. He also noted they were expert bowmen. At that time, Syria was more Greek than Arab or Persian, although it may not have been as Hellenized as some more cosmopolitan cities in the region. Like many cities on the edge of the empire, it maintained a sort of self-rule as a tributary or vassal state. And you didn't just stop in Palmyra for food and water when you were journeying, you stopped there for protection from raiding desert nomads. So the city had, as we might say today, a formidable and effective state security infrastructure. Palmyra was stuck in a position like Poland of the ancient world, if you will, situating right in between the powerful Roman and Persian empires. But Rome was falling apart at the seams. The state of the Roman Empire at that time is pretty important to Zenobia's story, so let's take a quick look at what this crisis really meant. While there isn't a consensus on when the Roman Empire began to fall, many point to this crisis as the beginning of the end. So, quickly, the emperor Septimius Severus died in 211, after two decades of stability as head of Rome. His son Caracalla succeeded him and was considered a pretty bad guy, probably because of his fondness for massacres and executions. He was assassinated by Macrinus, who didn't last long himself, and was succeeded by Elagabalus, whose reputation is that of total debauchery. He was then assassinated, and, well, eventually we get to Severus Alexander. He ruled for 13 years, from 222 to 235, and his reign was actually pretty good. He tried to stop inflation, he was tolerant of other religions, allowing a synagogue in Rome, and he tried to improve the lives of soldiers and common people. However, this coincided with the rise of the Sassanids in the east, and war came. Simultaneously, the northern part of the empire suddenly faced a threat from Germanic tribes. His conduct against them led to mutinous legions and, eventually, his assassination. What followed from that was the crisis of the 3rd century. Throughout the crisis, there were often multiple generals who claimed to be emperors, which is why the period is sometimes called the military anarchy. Rome would see internal turmoil, a breakdown of trade and communication, hyperinflation, and increasing localization. An emperor could not truly command the vast area under the Roman banner, and far-flung regions had to become more self-sufficient. The Sassanids took advantage of this turmoil and slowly chipped away at the Roman holdings. While there were certainly victories on both sides, in 244, Shapur I, the Sassanian emperor, defeated the well-liked Roman emperor Gordian, who was either killed in the battle or assassinated right after it. More defeats and more assassinations followed, And in 253, Shapur used a conflict in Armenia as impetus to invade Syria itself. Rome was completely unprepared for this, and Antioch, perhaps the third biggest city in the empire, was sacked. After this, thanks to more instability and assassinations, Valerian took charge of the Roman Empire in late 253. At that time in Palmyra, the leader of the city was a man named Odonathus. He married Zenobia around 255. She was his second wife, and he already had a son named Hyron when they were married. She gave him another son, Wab-alat in the local language. His Latinized name was Vobolathus. Valerian headed in their direction and retook Antioch, but was defeated and captured by Shapur in 260. His ultimate destiny is debated today, but what's important is that he was no longer the emperor. You can imagine the turmoil this caused, and a usurper tried to take the empire, bringing Valerian's son Gallienus back to Rome from the west, where he was trying to quell rebellions. Germanic tribes used this opportunity to launch another invasion. The coordinated invasion prevented Gallienus from helping to take revenge against Shapur in the east, or helping to calm the west, but he defeated the majority of these invading tribes. Much of the empire, though, was on its own against outside invaders, Franks were attacking Gaul, and the Sassanids were making their presence known in Syria. 260 was a banner year for the empire in all the worst ways. That year, Valerian got captured, and Gallienus was busy trying to defend Italy, so the West was very much left on its own. A general named Marcus Postumus led the military affairs of the West, and Gallienus's son as well as his son's guardian, led civilian affairs. Posthumus captured a Germanic tribe that had been raiding Roman territory. The imperial government wanted the captured loot to return it to those who it was taken from. But Posthumus distributed the wealth to his legions. This led to a dispute and an eventual siege of Cologne, where the imperial authority was represented, and the eventual capture and execution of Gallienus' prefect and his son. At that point, Posthumus was declared the Emperor of the West, specifically just the West, and the Roman Empire, at least from our perspective today, was officially split, with Gaul now home to the separate Gallic Empire. The East responded to their abandonment a little differently. Odinathus had been the leading man for quite a while in Palmyra, and he may have made some overtures to Shapur as Rome weakened. One story says that Shapur insulted him, essentially saying he was welcome to bend the knee if he'd like, and hinted Shapur was going to be visiting Palmyra soon with, you know, a big old army. Shapur clearly didn't see the city or the Romans as a threat, and the Sassanid army kept on raiding the Roman cities in the region. When returning from victories against other Roman cities, they were not prepared to fight the Palmyrenes. That was probably because relative neutrality, although as a Roman subject state, was the Palmyrene lifeblood. They were nominally independent and probably very happy that way. But they either saw an opportunity to be something bigger or the threat from Persia so great that they knew it was going to disappear regardless. So Odonathus met Shapur's army on its return to Persia from the Mediterranean and defeated it. Odonathus became the de facto ruler of the region because Gallienus had no authority and needed help to keep the Persians away. Real Roman authority over the region was coming from Palmyra now, but unlike the Gallic Empire, it was still part of the Roman Empire. A few Roman legions based in the east decided it was time to claim the whole Roman Empire for themselves, and marched west to take it, but were defeated by Gallienus. Odonathus stayed quiet until after this battle, but then captured many of these enemies of the state as they fled over the next year. Gallienus seemed to have a loyal local leader out east, but no actual control over him or the territory. Odonathus took numerous titles given to him by the Romans, including imperator, meaning more like supreme military commander of the east rather than emperor, which would have been traditionally styled Augustus. Odonathus and Zenobia the ruling couple in the region, but as long as Odonathus lived, there was still imperial approval to his rule. Gary K. Young, in his book Rome's Eastern Trade, wrote, whatever the technical implications of his title, if indeed there were any, the reality of the situation in the Roman East in the 260s was that Odonathus ruled the Roman East as the deputy of Gallienus, and that he led the only effective military resistance to the Persians at the time. The fact that he remained the loyal adherent of Gallienus, and was never in any sense a rebel against Roman rule, is clearly indicated by the fact that he never minted coins in his name. He did not declare a separate kingdom, although he did begin calling himself the King of Kings, Melik Melik in Aramaic. But as the Romans really weren't concerned with that, go ahead, be king of all the kings you want out there, as long as you submit to the emperor. He was just what they needed at the time when they couldn't defend themselves in the east. But in the year 266, it seems that Odonathus and Zenobia were traveling with their army, possibly on the way to Anatolia to help Rome fight against Gothic invaders in Cappadocia. Odonathus and his heir his son through another marriage, were killed. The Historia Augusta blames Zenobia for an assassination conspiracy, while other sources blame Gallienus for the murder. Both had their reasons, as Zenobia would prefer her own son Vaballathus to be Odonathus' successor. A chastised and slighted nephew who was quickly put to death by Zenobia may have been the actual killer. Or it could have been Gallienus' doing. He would have parts of his empire in imminent danger if he had done it, but he may have feared Odonathus's power. If it was him, he underestimated Zenobia's. She was now a 30-year-old widow and could have completely disappeared into history at this point. Odonathus was basically king of Palmyra with a letter of mark from Rome. Whether or not Vabolathus would be allowed to succeed him as de facto ruler of the east was not really decided, until, that is, Zenobia stepped in and worked to proclaim him as leader, and she began ruling as a regent for her young son. How she did this is unclear. She probably consolidated power among the generals of her husband's army. These men may have been both Palmyrene as well as Roman soldiers. It was said that she accompanied Odonathus on campaign. The Historia Augusta says she rode a horse rather than a carriage, she always walked with her foot soldiers and drank with her generals. It says she drank with the Persians and the Armenians too, but only to get the best of them. Whether or not she did any of the fighting or any of the generaling, she was with her soldiers and earned their respect and loyalty. If, as some assume, she advised her husband, or maybe was even the real brains behind his leadership, then it isn't hard to assume a few of his top generals were supportive of her. With that kind of support, it was probably easy for the rest of her support to fall into place. Zenobia, as her son's regent, was the real ruler of Palmyra, and like her husband, the person with the actual power in the Roman East. A nice spot for sure, but the reason she was able to do this was a weakened Roman empire. This put Zenobia in a tough spot. A weakened empire meant she wasn't getting much support from Rome, in money or in manpower. It also meant a less interconnected empire, a poorer empire with less trade. Less trade hit at Palmyra's raison d'etre. And if Zenobia wanted to continue to protect the Roman flanks, keep Shapur at bay, and keep her holdings in her army, it would be expensive. Zenobia had to find a way to do all of these things, and since there was nothing Rome could do to support her, she had to expand her territory. It was an odd situation. She was a Roman client state, and she was going to expand her territory by taking over other Roman states. How she navigated the years in between the death of Odonathus and the expansion of her own territory is not known. She may have just taken some time consolidating power and ruling her home region. There may have been some battles with Persia that were not recorded, but within a few years the realization that the status quo would not work for her must have hit home. By 270 BC, about four years after Odonathus' death, she began to act on taking what she might have seen as necessary to sustain her own city. She didn't actually have to fight for much of the region. It was through politics that she got the local leaders to recognize Palmyra as their master in much of Syria and eastern Anatolia. Cities in this region historically had conflicts with, and didn't always appreciate, Roman rule. They might have been happy to be pulled closer to a ruler with Greek and Persian influences. Those cultures tended to leave a bit more freedom to their client states. Sound familiar? Was this finally a step too far for the Romans? Probably. It's hard to think that once the Romans got themselves into shape, they wouldn't have done something to get everything back as it should be in their eyes. But as this was going on, the Roman Emperor Claudius II died. Claudius was doing pretty well up to that point. He hadn't retaken the Gallic Empire, but he had handled the threat of the Goths, defeating them in one battle, and was on his way to another when he died of the plague. His brother Quintilus succeeded him, but only lasted a short while, and died in bloody circumstances before 270 ended. After Claudius died, his army was led by Aurelian, who continued on to defeat the Goths, and then turned his attention to Quintilus. A battle probably occurred, although maybe not, the sources are confused, and Aurelian was the third emperor, and final one, of the year 270. It was a position that would stick, and with the Gothic threat neutralized, he was able to look outward. Regardless of Rome's distaste for what Zenobia had done before, her ability to claim that she was just doing it for the safety of Rome and as a vassal to the emperor probably went out the door that year when she started to take Roman cities by force. Zenobia and her leading general Zabdus marched on Bostra in southern Syria, the provincial capital of Arabia Petraea. A battle ensued, the Roman provincial leader named Trassus was killed, and the city was taken. It's possible she then took Petra, the city carved from the cliffs that Indy found the Grail in, before moving on down southwest to take Egypt itself if anything prior, could be excused away as an attempt to keep the area around Palmyra safe. And after the battle against Roman forces in Bostra, this was doubtful anyway. Her next move completely severed any ties. She decided to invade Alexandria, the leading city of Egypt. This was a major power play. Egypt was more than just an important part of the empire. It was the biggest source of grain and the richest province in the whole empire. The prefect of the province was rarely, perhaps never, a senator, but rather an equestrian. The senators had their own power base to draw from, and giving them control of Egypt could allow them to try to undermine the emperor. Equestrians, essentially the Roman knights, in many ways derived their power from the emperor himself, and were much less of a threat. The praefectus aegypti at the time was an experienced equestrian named Tenagino Probus, Probus was dealing with pirates by the time Zenobia truly set her sights on Egypt. Pirates, or perhaps the Goths who were keeping Aurelian busy raiding ports on the eastern Mediterranean, in addition to wearing their black lipstick or whatever. Whoever was being dealt with, it kept Probus, a well-respected and able military commander and governor, out of Egypt. Thus, the timing may not have been totally coincidental. The news of the death of Claudius should have reached the region by now, if not the death of his successor Quintilus. There was certainly an opportunity for upheaval in a region that had seen its share of riots against Roman authority. As Zenobia made her way down to Alexandria, she again took advantage of pro-Palmyrene, or at least very anti-Roman, factions. We don't have a real account of a battle for Alexandria, but we know that someone named Timogenes, perhaps a Roman officer in Egypt, perhaps a local Egyptian of some power, perhaps even a Palmyrene leader, helped lead a revolt in Alexandria. Zenobia's 70,000-man army took Egypt, possibly without much of a fight, but she only left 5,000 stationed in the city. The Romans might have left twice as many, and Probus was able to retake the city when he returned. However, he was soon ambushed and defeated by Timogenes near modern-day Cairo, giving control of Egypt to Palmyra. It's worth noting a major difference between Palmyra's army and Rome's. Palmyra was a small city-state with a core group of battle-hardened soldiers, but not a vast army. So when it raised 70,000 men, most of these were probably mercenaries. Some, from Syria, might have been quite loyal to Palmyra. Others may have been fighting for much less of a purpose. It's entirely possible that some were Roman mercenaries until Roman authority melted away, and then Zenobia started paying them. Rome certainly used mercenaries as well, but the Roman army was a formidable thing on its own. Roman legions were each around 5,000 men, although during the crisis of the 3rd century the numbers may have been smaller, and less than 15 years after the events here Diocletian reformed the army to more numerous but much smaller thousand-man legions. They were, though, professional soldiers, and the army was huge. Early in the 3rd century, it may have numbered 450,000, including auxiliaries, although that number was surely smaller after the plagues, defeats, and splintering of the empire. Still, the ones that remained were Roman soldiers that were then complemented by mercenaries, as opposed to an army made up mostly of mercenaries. This lack of Palmyrene manpower is a big part of why Zenobia wasn't able to leave more troops to protect Alexandria. Back to her expansion of her empire, at some point she also took Antioch, although there doesn't seem to be any evidence of conflict. Because Odonathus saved Antioch from Roman usurpers for Gallienus, it was probably under de facto Palmyrene control for a decade. Despite all this, even after taking Alexandria, Zenobia tried to maintain the illusion that she was a Roman subject. She probably didn't think that the Romans would really buy it, but she was reluctant to declare full independence and even printed coins with Vobolathus' face on one side and Aurelian's on the other. And only Aurelian was referred to as the Augustus. Vobolathus was still just a humble subject king acting for the good of Rome. The problem with invading Egypt is, from the perspective of Rome, there was no reason to do it. It faced no threat from Persia, not with, well, Palmyra in between them, and not from the west, which was still Roman territory. Zenobia now held Antioch and Alexandria, two of maybe the three or four biggest and most important cities of the Roman Empire. If this was allowed to continue, she would hold significant economic sway over Rome so they could not really allow this to continue. There was something else, though, too. As I mentioned, Egypt was not a senatorial province. It was an imperial province. In other words, yeah, the emperor had to protect his empire, and Syria was part of that, but Egypt was his personal property, and Zenobia went in and took his personal property. In 271... Aurelian had taken care of the Gothic invasions in Southeast Europe, and was ready to take care of reuniting what was now a splintered empire. He made his way through Asia Minor, and Zenobia watched as city after city opened their gates to him. She and Zabdus decided not to try and face Rome and Anatolia. It was extremely mountainous, which, while difficult to navigate, played to the Roman strength, the infantry, rather than the Palmyrene strength, the cataphract. The cataphract was a lance-wielding cavalry soldier, and both he and his horse were heavily armored. They needed room to maneuver, and the open deserts and plains of the Fertile Crescent was a much better place for this than Asia Minor. Cities quickly yielded, as Aurelian had a fierce reputation, and there was no reason to believe Zenobia was coming to bail them out. After a city or two held out against Roman forces but were eventually defeated, and then weren't punished with days of raping and pillaging, that was about it for the rest of Asia Minor. Aurelian's clemency quickly ended the resistance of the cities outside of Zenobia's home turf of Syria. As Rome started a slow and steady reconquest, Zenobia made her own preparations, including making new coins that had no mention of Aurelian at all, either in 271 or 272. In other words, she was putting words on paper, or metal in this case, that stated what was already known. No more Palmyra as the pretend vassal state to Rome, but the independent Palmyrene Empire. This was, in effect, the public announcement of a complete break from Rome. By 272, Aurelian had made his way across Anatolia, into the northern part of the Levant. The armies met outside of Antioch, near a town called Imae, The Palmyrene cataphracts were superior to the lighter Roman cavalry, and Aurelian knew this. He positioned his cavalry a bit off the field, and when Zabdus ordered the cataphracts to engage, the Romans turned and fled. The cataphracts gave chase until the Romans sprung their trap, wheeled around, and attacked. This move surprised the Palmyrenes, and they were routed. The cataphracts were slaughtered and Zenobia and Zabdus knew they wouldn't be able to stand up to the superior Roman infantry. They fled to Antioch, where they paraded a fake Aurelian through the city to convince the locals of their victory. Then they quickly left, heading towards Emesa, now known as the Syrian city of Homs, with the remnants of their army still a large force. Aurelian got Antioch back in the fold, and Zenobia needed to regroup. Aurelian pursued her to Emesa, which held some significance to the Romans. It was the place where Valerian was captured, which really kicked off this whole Palmyra as an empire in the first place. Outside of Emesa, Zenobia had gathered a strong force, again estimated around 70,000. Zenobia and Zabdis once again had the advantage they were looking for, a wide open plain for their superior cavalry to take out the Roman cavalry then wheel around and surround the Roman infantry. They were able to drive back the lighter Roman cavalry. It seemed to actually be turning into a complete rout, but this is where things went bad for Palmyra. Maybe it was because so many of the experienced cataphracts died at MA, or maybe it was because these soldiers were used to raiding rather than pitch battles, but they just kept chasing after the cavalry. Doing this led them to break ranks in pursuit. And this was their downfall. A well formed line of heavy cavalry is going to do serious damage to even the highly trained Roman infantry. But a disciplined or even just relatively well ordered infantry can take down individual horsemen. And that's exactly what happened. The infantry was able to defeat the heavily armored, horse riding, but at this point extremely disorganized Palmyrene cavalry. Zenobia fled this battle as well this time back to Palmyra. It is said that Aurelian was greeted warmly in both Antioch and Emesa. This may be propaganda, but it also isn't hard to believe. Zenobia probably didn't conquer either city, she just politically worked her way into ruling them. There wasn't the kind of intimidation factor that the Romans had. There was nothing that really tied them to Palmyra, other than sympathy and the belief that the Palmyrene Empire might leave them alone more than the Roman Empire would. But being Roman wasn't so bad, and when Aurelian shows up, it seems a lot safer. Zenobia was stuck. While Palmyra was well positioned to withstand a siege, with its spot on the oasis in the middle of the desert, she probably assumed she could only hold out for so long. She had also left her treasury behind at Emesa, and it fell into Aurelian's hands. She may have brought gold and money with her to pay for mercenaries, but this could possibly also be a bit overstated. Perhaps these were coins and treasure from Antioch, and she still had a nice stash back in Palmyra. Out of options, she turned towards Persia, but her overtures to them went unanswered or flat-out denied, as Shapur was dying and factions were fighting for control. She decided to go there herself to appeal for help, truly a last-ditch effort the Sassanids could not have been happy with her. Remember, Odonathus and Zenobia were the only thing that kept Persia from sacking every city in Syria. She probably knew that submitting to Persia meant giving up Palmyra's independence, which it had managed to hold on to for so long, but the alternative was not pretty. So she set off to Ctesiphon, the Persian capital. She made her way to the Euphrates River, but was captured, making her way across it. Palmyra Quickly gave up the siege and the city was spared. Again, despite his reputation and their resistance, Aurelian was trying to reunite and preserve an empire, not destroy one. Zabdus and some of the other leaders of the city were executed. This included her chief adviser Cassius Longinus, a philosopher who is said to have advised Zenobia to fight for independence, as well as the influential cultural figure Callinicus of Petra a Greco-Syrian historian who wrote a ten-volume history of Alexander and accepted the patronage of Zenobia and moved to Palmyra. Zenobia was spared so that she could be paraded as the captured leader in the traditional Roman triumph. The splintered empire now once again included the eastern third, and with Persia still in turmoil, some stability was regained. Palmyra tried to revolt again, but this was crushed much more forcefully this time. By 274, Aurelian had regained the Gallic Empire as well, and Zenobia was finally paraded in a Roman triumph. She was said to be so covered in jewels and gold that she could barely walk. After that, what happened to her is unknown. The same with her son Volbolithus, who was still a young boy. Some sources say he died on the way to Rome. Others are less clear. Zenobia may well have survived to live in Tiber, modern Tivoli. It has been suggested she married a Roman senator and lived a life as a philosopher, socialite, and no doubt a celebrity. This isn't just wishful thinking. Evidence suggests that much of the leadership of the Gallic Empire was spared execution as well. Perhaps the best way to sum up her life is to quote a letter from Aurelian, the man who defeated her. It's from the Historia Augusta, which was written a century or two later, and has serious authenticity issues. But while it maybe really wasn't a direct quote from Aurelian, it was from a Roman author later on who was trying to convey how he believed Aurelian felt. So, it gives us a great idea of the impression she made on the Roman people. In the letter, Aurelian is explaining why he'd showcase her in a triumph. After all, it was unmanly for Romans to brag about winning against a woman. It says, quote, those very persons who find fault with me now would accord me praise in abundance did they but know what manner of woman she is, how wise in counsels, how steadfast in plans, how firm toward the soldiers, how generous when necessity calls, and how stern when discipline demands. I might even say that it was her doing that Odonathus defeated the Persians and, after putting support a flight, advanced all the way to Ctesiphon. I might add thereto that such was the fear that this woman inspired in the peoples of the East, and also the Egyptians, that neither Arabs nor Saracens nor Armenians ever moved against her. Nor would I have spared her life had I not known that she did a great service to the Roman state when she preserved the imperial power in the East for herself, or for her children. Zenobia was a great leader, and she was a well-respected ruler. She was intelligent, strong, admired, and feared, and she helped to save Eastern Rome from external threats before she became a major internal one herself. She wasn't just admired by her people, she was admired by the Romans themselves, probably for both her service to the empire and her ability to take it on in a fight. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Just a reminder, there's maps and links to some of the biographies of people mentioned here. As well as some pictures at almostforgotten.squarespace.com, the website. And if you have any questions or comments, please email me at almostforgottenpodcastgmail.com at or on Twitter at the almost forgot. Tune in next time when we move a few hundred years forward and a few thousand miles east to a man who reunited one of the world's great empires. Thanks again for listening.